Welcome back to Distinct Nostalgia. We've lots of great interviews, reunions and documentaries lined up for you for the rest of 2023. And we're making a return now with a special series of interviews with some greats of British film and TV. First up, giving a lovely insight into the life of her iconic mum, Dame Thora Heard, as well as an illustrious career of her own, is 60s film star Jeanette Scott. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast. Let's start this, shall we, in a sort of chronological way and start at the very beginning. Um, You were born, am I right, in Morecambe in Lancashire? I was indeed, as was my mother, uh, who was a lady called Thora Hurd, who I'm sure you've heard of. She was a brilliant actress and not a day goes by that I don't miss her company. Yes, indeed. She's much missed, is Thora. Uh, Well, tell us a bit about your earliest memories then because of course you grew up in what was a theatrical family wasn't it okay ashley well let's see i'm the third generation on both sides of my family in show business what they these days call the entertainment industry but i grew up in show business (laughs) and uh, indeed my my own children now Uh, Daisy Tormey and James Tormey are also in the business. So as much as I'm the third, they are now the fourth generation in the family business. (laughs) I only got into the business by mistake, really. I was two years old. World War II had just started. So you can guess my age from that. (laughs) And... uh, My mother was working at Ealing Studios in London and missed me so desperately that she had a friend bring me down from Morecambe, where I was living in safety, to London. And of course, as soon as I arrived, and this happened several times during the war, on leaving Euston Station, there would be an air raid warning and my poor mother would panic and want to put me on the next train going back to the north and safety. But as I say, she missed me so much that she took me to the film studios with her, mainly because she had no one to leave me with. And uh, she deposited me in the wardrobe department with a lovely wardrobe lady and her assistants while mother went on the set of a film called Went the Day Well. This starred Elizabeth Allen, Frank Lawton, and Mervyn Johns, father of Glynis Johns, who I met much later on in my life. Anyway, they were shooting the last scene of the film, which took place in the set of the village church. And there were the the leading lady and the leading man with a child between them which was meant to indicate that everything was well, they had married, they had had a child, and everything was going to be happy ever after. And as they shot this particular scene, the child that they had hired screamed every time the camera that was on a huge crane came down towards them to take a close shot of them. 
And finally, the director, who was a man called Cavalcanti, uh, said, get this child off the set, which of course they did. And then everyone looked around and said, but what do we do now, Mr. Cavalcanti? And my mum, who was just behind the leading man and lady uh, in this particular shot, said, well, uh, I've got a child if you'd like to use my child, but it's a little girl and you wanted a little boy. This, that doesn't matter, bring her on the set. <laughs> so, I was brought on the set. I did not scream when the camera came close to us. Uh, I was in the last shot of the film and got my very first paycheck that day that my mother put in my baby book on the front page. I think it was two guineas, which in those days was the equivalent of one pound, one shilling. And that's how I started in show business. <laughs> so basically, you could say that you were born into it, really. I really was. I really was. And uh, come to think of it, uh, I never thought of doing anything else. Although I think at one point, round about the age of six, I thought there would be nothing better than to be a bus conductress going around and going up the stairs of a double-decker bus and clicking everyone's tickets, which in those days you did. So I would... I would be redundant if I had carried on with that career. <laughs> I think most little boys and little girls too, um, when it comes to, you know, trains or cars or things like that, um, you know, are quite excited about that kind of thing, aren't they? Oh, yes, absolutely right. <laughs> so what was your earliest memory then of something that was, um, you know, um, actually... Re really acting. <laughs> Okay, this was another mistake. Uh, once again, mother had had me brought down from the north of England and she had to go uh, for an audition to see a casting director at Associated British Pictures, which was just off Golden Square in London, just behind Piccadilly Circus. Once again, she didn't have anywhere to put me. She took me along to the audition and left me in the waiting room of which there were several doors leading to different casting directors for different films. She said, stay there, I'll be out in a minute. In she went for her audition. And while I was sitting there, all on my own, no one else in the waiting room, a casting director called Robert Leonard came through the waiting room on his way to his office and said, who are you? And of course I said, Jeanette Scott, which is my name. And of course he didn't tie up the connection between myself and my mother, Thora Heard, at all. So he sat down beside me and started talking to me. When my mother came out of her audition, a part she did not get, by the way. Robert Leonard said to her, I've been having a lovely chat with your daughter and she tells me she is an actress now. And my mother said, well, yes, she would. And uh, he said, well, 
Jeanette, if ever I need a little girl in a film, I'll remember you. And out my mother and I went, and my life continued. Three years later, the telephone rang, my mother or my father answered, and it was Robert Leonard saying, have you still got that little girl? It was my mother, I think, because she said, yes, but she's a big girl. She's nine years old now. She's not the, the little six-year-old you met. And he said, well, Associated British Pictures are doing a film called No Place for Jennifer. And it is about a little girl. Would you like to have her audition for the part? So my mother and father talked about it and said, well, all right, nothing gained, nothing lost. Um, I went and I was seen with about a hundred other children, uh, then seen with the final dozen. I was then film tested with the final four and I ended up with the part and a 10-year contract with Elstree ABPC Pictures. Before we go on and we get lost in the story maybe about your mom and you and whatever, uh, remind us about your father. Was your dad actually in the industry as well? He wasn't an actor. He was a musician. He was a cellist and then found that there was more money to be made in playing the timpani or the drums indeed, and then went off to war with the RAF, came back, couldn't get a job in London, and started working for a bank. But he was at heart a musician, and as his father had been before him. And uh, I was incredibly fortunate that when I got the film No Place for Jennifer and the contract that I just mentioned to you, rather than have the studio um, hire someone to look after and chaperone me, as well as having a private tutor on the set and all the things I had to go through like that, he gave up his job at the bank probably very happily. I don't know, I was too young to think to ask him. Uh, but he did stay with me as both chaperone and later manager, and then managed my mother and I for many years. So can you remember you know, that, first, that first day, that your, your first filming experience? Yes, I remember quite a bit about it. What can I say? It was at Welland Studios, and then we did about five or six weeks shooting at Elstree. Uh, what I think might be more interesting to you is the fact that when I was having my tutor and my private lessons, uh, in order to escape my private lessons, I would hide out in places like the editing rooms and the studio where they were recording music for films and things. And without realizing it, they were the greatest lessons I ever learned for my later career. Um, actually, when I was shooting at Elstree that time, on the next door set, there was a film being made called The Hasty Heart, which was Richard Todd's first film and starred a delightful American who 
would come and sit by me at lunch times and ask me what I was doing and how my lessons were going. And his name was Ronald Reagan. And little did I know in my nine-year-old innocence that he would become president of the United States. But he was lovely to me. He really was. And I remember him with great fondness. Hmm. So were you aware, do you think, at that age of the kind of life that you were part of and that your parents were part of and that that was a, somehow a bit different to other people, I suppose? Yeah, I know what you mean, actually. Yeah, no, this was my life. This was the family life. It was my life. If I went home, Mother might be at some other studios filming that day. She would be home. If I was at normal school, which by the way, without showing off, uh, whenever I went back to normal school, uh, I was always top of the class because I'd had private tuition. <laughs> Although I had escaped many lessons in the editing rooms. Um, but uh, it didn't enter my mind that this wasn't my, our family life. And I was very happy, very happy to do it. So your dad was sort of, a, in a way, sort of an agent to you, was he? Not an agent, a manager. He would manage our working diaries and, and, uh, and organise our lives, which became quite complicated to do, believe me. He was lovely and exactly the right person to be married to my mother. My mother was probably the brainiest, quickest, wittiest person I will ever come into contact with. Uh, but she needed a lot of keeping up with. <laughs> My father, on the other hand, he was calm. He was a quiet Scotsman. He had immense patience and understanding. And uh, gosh, I, to try and think, I, I, I can't remember him ever losing patience with either of us. Uh, on the other hand, there was no doubt about who wore the pants in our house. He was the head of the house, he organised the house, and uh, I was so blessed to, to grow up with the two of them who had, both of them had their feet firmly planted on the ground. And I think probably that's one of the reasons that uh, I grew up, I hope, reasonably well balanced in what can be a crazy business and I think a lot of people who get maybe overnight success have stars in their eyes and maybe don't realize that it is a business that you've got to be organized you know and um, and so I was very very blessed and lucky to have them as uh, down-to-earth parents. And your mum of course uh, became a huge actress but she was always sort of rooted to Lancashire and the North, wasn't she? Oh, she was desperately proud of the North and loved the North and loved her old friends up in Morecambe. 
and was a northerner. I think it was about 25 years she did Last of the Summer Wine in Yorkshire. And uh, of course, there were always the great jokes about the best thing out of Yorkshire is the road to Lancashire, <laughs> things like that. But basically, the North. She loved the North. The North was in her blood. And, um, and she stuck up for the North whenever the occasion requested or demanded it, always. Of course, before doing Last of the Summer Wine, she also did the Yorkshire television series In Loving Memory, which was about her running on Undertakers with her nephew. Yes. <laughs> My favourite parts of In Loving Memory was when she would answer the telephone with a posh voice. <laughs> yes, bless her heart. That was a lovely series. Yeah, and what you're saying there about that northern woman pretending to be posh, you got that also uh, in other actors and characters, didn't you? Molly Sugden often did that in some of the parts she played. It was a, a common thing, wasn't it, really? Uh, yeah, for strangers, yeah. <laughs> it's rather like having a front room that you never use except if someone comes that you don't really know. <laughs> yes. Well, we'll talk some more about your mum's career um, later on, but let's go back to yours. And actually, you spent quite a bit of time, didn't you, working in children's television? I mean, I'm so surprised you know about that. Yes, I announced for children's hour television for about a year. And uh, actually, that, that really scared me because in those days there was no such thing as a teleprompter. So if there was a, a children's play, I had to memorize the characters and the people who played the characters and then go on screen and not read the, the list of characters. And, uh, oh my goodness, that really frightened me. We used to... Mainly, we did it from Lime Grove, which is now Shepherd's Bush Television Studios. But for quite a few months, we also did it at um, Crystal Palace, where the very original television was shown. I mean, you know, you couldn't get an older studio than the one in Crystal Palace. But how times have changed. I wouldn't have to learn anything now. I'd just look at the teleprompter and you'd think I was looking straight at you. <laughs> uh, it was just after that that I did No Highway in the Sky. I was 12 years old. And uh, I say No Highway in the Sky, that was the American title of the film. But in England, they just called it No Highway. And that had an amazing cast. That was Jimmy Stewart playing my father, Jack Hawkins, Marlena Dietrich, and Glynis Johns, whose father I mentioned having been in my first film. And uh, that was probably the first film where I really worked at making my acting persona into a real character. I really 
worked hard at making that someone different from who I was. And it, it, it paid off. It was, a, it was a lovely success for me, I'm delighted to say. But Jimmy Stewart was absolutely super as my dad. And years later, when I was living in Beverly Hills in California, we met in a, a, a charity ball and he came over to the table where I was sitting and said, you're Jeanette, aren't you? And I said, and this time I was grown up and married and, you know, and I said, yes, I am. And he grabbed my arm and we went and we must have danced half a dozen dances together while we caught up on what we'd been doing. Well, I knew what he'd been doing, of course, but I told him about my life and he was a lovely man. Uh, as was Jack Hawkins. Uh, and interestingly enough, Marlene Dietrich, who was not known as being particularly friendly with any cast member, gave me a great deal of her time and taught me about, for example, camera lenses and to find out what number lens they were using because that would affect what size my head was going to be on the big cinema screen. And therefore I could either play down my performance or play up my performance according to whether it was a long shot or a close up. And she also taught me a great deal about lighting. And uh, years later when someone was writing a book about her and I told them this, they were absolutely amazed that she had bothered to, to give me that time of her life, you know, and uh, so that was a, a really interesting little side issue. I saw her years later too. She was doing cabaret at the Café de Paris in London once again. I was with David Frost at that time. We were together for about four or five years. At that point, Marlena was also, gave me a wonderful welcome when we went to see her afterwards. And her pianist with her on that show was Bert Baccarat, who of course was unknown, uh, as certainly as a, a great songwriter, and was just her pianist for, for her tour. So that was interesting later on to look back and realise that. With No Highway in the Sky, that was 1951. Marlena, by that point, I presume, was known for her singing. She was a huge singer by that point. I don't know. She did so many movies. Uh, I, honestly, I don't... Uh, singer is, is sort of flattering her a bit, isn't it? <laughs> Was a, a performer of songs. <laughs> Falling in love again, never wanted to. <laughs> what am I to do? I can't help it. Fantastic. <laughs> now let's talk about some of your your films. Um, in particular, there was the Galloping Major, of course, in 1951, which was a, a British comedy sports film. Oh, the Galloping Major. Yes. The, the Henry Cornelius directed that, 
uh, his famous film was Hue and Cry, or maybe Whiskey Galore. Anyway, The Galloping Major was about a milk horse that ended up winning the Grand National. <laughs> and, uh, Jimmy Hanley and Basil Radford played my father. Happy memories of it, I have, but I can't think of any specific little story that might uh, make you giggle. <laughs> but it was a, a happy film to make, for sure. And you became quite a leading lady in quite a few films early on, didn't you? Tell us a bit about uh, School for Scoundrels in, uh, was it 1960, I think it was? Ah, uh, <laughs> Well, I had already made a couple of one, two, three films with Terry Thomas and Ian Carmichael uh, for the Bolting Brothers at Shepperton Studios. But Hal Chester, who was the producer and one of the original Dead End Boys in America, that's really going back even beyond my time, he was producing this film from the Stephen Potter books of lifemanship and one-upmanship and School for Scoundrels or How to Win Without Actually Cheating, as the full title was, <laughs> was put together and we made it in Elstree Studios. It, it was a happy reunion for the three of us, Terry Thomas and Ian Carmichael and myself. Uh, to get together again and the wonderful addition of Alistair Sim who was quite excellent playing Stephen Potter. Good film to make. Terry by that time, Terry Thomas, unfortunately if he had a liquid lunch at the local pub across the way was not quite as cooperative in the afternoons as he had been in the mornings. And uh, this was a bit sad. It never affected me. He never uh, lost his temper or became irrational with me, but he would with other people on the set. And I, it was only because of the, the demon drink and, and lunch, unfortunately. Some fabulous films from what is now obviously looked at as the golden era, of course, of film in uh, Britain and uh, America. And quite a lot of those films, um, of course, were lost. As Gene Kelly said to me once, he was in my house in, in Beverly Hills, uh, and uh, I was asking him if he had, because in those days, video and DVDs and things like that didn't exist. So if you wanted to see a film, you had to see the film somewhere. And I asked him if he had a copy of my favorite film, Singing in the Rain. And he said, no. And I said, shouldn't you have a copy made so that you've got it? And he said, well, if I want to see it, I ring up the studios and they arrange for me to have uh, a viewing of it in one of their private screening rooms. And I said, gosh, I think you should have a copy of it. Why didn't you have one made at the time? And he said, well, we thought it would go on forever. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people did. And therefore, I think an awful lot of films, particularly in Hollywood, are sort of lost forever. 
but it, it's an interesting thought. And of course, it's the same over here in television, isn't it? Oh, I know the stuff that I've lost of my mother's because they wanted to save the tape. <laughs> so they would just tape over what must have been fantastic performances of plays and things. It's very quite sad, really. So going back to Terry Thomas briefly, um, what else can you tell us about him? How did you, how well did you know him? Well, I knew him quite well because quite by um, chance, we happened to be next door neighbours in a muse in London. And so before uh, I worked with him, on School for Scoundrels, and then another film I made with him called His and Hers. I knew him as a neighbor and uh, would see him as I took the dogs out for a walk in Kensington Gardens and things like that. And he was really very nice. He wasn't, let me put it this way. Uh, how can I put it? Let me see. <laughs> okay, with Ian Carmichael, Ian and his wife, wouldn't have hesitated to say, let's all go out for dinner. You know, let's go to a theater together or something. I was never that close to Terry, but we would stop and chat and put the world to rights uh, without ever actually making an appointment to come over for dinner or anything like that. And he was, there's no doubt about it, a great and unique character on film, especially. And, uh, and a loss when, when he finally uh, succumbed to whatever it was. Mm. And of course, in a lot of these films, uh, popping up alongside you was John Le Majurier. Oh, yes. John was in many films I made. <laughs> oh, he's a lovely man. Yes. Uh, was it Hattie Jakes he was married to? Yes, it was. Yeah. He's particularly good in School for Scoundrels. Uh, there's a wonderful shot of the back of his head in the middle of the film and him moving his ears without touching them, uh, waggling his ears. Uh, and, uh, that always makes me laugh. No, he was a very nice man, very, a true gentleman, as they would say, Ashley. Now, of course, you were busy, your mum was busy, your dad was busy. Did you have much time to engage with each other? Did you see much of her? You know, what was what was life like between you and your mum? <laughs> um, mother did an awful lot of, of stage work uh, also. And uh, so I, I spent a great deal of time in the wings watching her perform on the stage. Uh, let's see. You know, uh, funnily enough, you ask if we saw each other much. Yes, I mean, we were living in the same place until I left home and married. And um, uh, we saw each other all the time, really, coming and going and just hanging out. Uh, we giggled a lot. I could make her laugh, and she obviously could make me laugh, but we could make each other laugh. And that was a, a huge plus and because we were so totally different she was performing uh character parts even from a young woman she was playing old women or, or char ladies or you know very big characters and i was doing the reverse of that 
a lot of people say, well, weren't you jealous of each other's careers or, or each other's success? It never entered our minds. Just didn't. And listen out for part two of Ashley's chat with Jeanette Scott in the coming days. And don't forget there's over 200 hours of great interviews, reunions, documentaries, as well as new comedy and drama on distinct nostalgia. Just scroll back through our archive wherever you get your podcasts. Distinct Nostalgia. More than a podcast.